namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa udang dhammang sangang namasami So today, <coughs> today is a, a gathering in a um, just coming together in the meditation hall, and it's a it's an all, it's an all night sitting. So it's a strong emphasis on gathering ourselves together, sense of solidarity. Um, how this very form and function can help to um, support us, can help to free us from the various compulsions that we have going in our minds, uh, everyday lives, the forms and functions that kind of are running along in terms of what we do and uh, the various temporal things, the time-bound occupations, the time-bound concerns, including our own ups and downs and emotions and feelings, the inner forms, inner functions, external forms, external functions. You know, and here we have this particular form and function, which is med- called meditation, collecting, focusing, clearing, releasing, investigating, these kinds of uh, actions, you might say subtle actions. And, and of course, through that we begin to get a sense of something beyond action, you know, stillness, um, Perhaps even to call it a thing is, is, is the wrong word, but an experience where action ceases uh, as a quality of something like openness or space, boundlessness, something non-locatable. It's not a form, it's not a function, it's not a person, it's not an entity, it's not a nature or an essence, a self, anything you can really put your thumb on and name in any way, and yet... Uh, the feeling of, of access to that is peaceful and very authentic. Uh, perhaps the most authentic and real thing that we can experience. Well, for norm- normally, of course, what seems so authentic and real is that which grabs us, excites us, motivates us, interests us, um, compels us in some way or another. Uh, you know, joyful, depressing, interesting, anxious, passionate, all these things are things that really come right in your face, get your, get your heart pumping, get your brain whirling, get your nervings crackling, and this is the, or oh, just gently rocking and rolling, and this is the, uh, what we take to be the real, the real world, there's certainly plenty of it, everybody's buzzing along in it, uh, human society, the planet is rolling around in it, 
uh, forms. Uh, but in fact, <clears throat> as you begin to try to um, notice how it all changes all the time, you know, yesterday's, yesterday's interest is today's old hat. The passion of five years ago is a memory. The anxiety of what the topic we were anxious about, you know, 1980 or 2000 sort of changes. And our responses to all these changes. So, you know, how real is the real world? You know, you know our allies of 50 years ago are our enemies today. Enemies of 50 years ago are allies today globally. You know, economic powers go up and down. Yesterday's big corporations are going bankrupt. And so, you know, money changes its value all the time, going up and down. How real is the real world? And yet this is the stuff that people are burying themselves into, digging into, fighting over, priding themselves over. Yeah. And just an analogy that Ajahn Chah used, he said, well, in the future, we'll just use chicken shit instead of money. So people will be able to fight over chicken shit and how much chicken shit they've got and who's got the best kind and what they can get with it. He says, just like that. You just call something money and it seems so valuable. Actually, if you just looked at it as lumps of you know, metal that are own paper that only as valuable as people's belief and, and fascination with it. You know, how real is it all? What is the real? You know, and because we do get so pulled into all these uh, things that, that function, they, they operate, money operates, uh, definitely does things and uh, moves things around. Uh, all our attention goes into that. Our lives get motivated by that. And we give it. And we give all these things like nationalities, religious forms, um, social trends, fashions, so forth. We impart them with power and authority. Yeah. We, and then, so we give them a reality that they don't actually have apart from that. Yeah. So yeah, really the, the so-called real world is really fabricated and, and concocted out of, out of our involvement, out of our beliefs, our interests, our hopes, our fears. We'll, we'll give it that. Yet there is the real. It's not as if it were just completely in a meaningless experience. And the Buddha said he pointed to what he called the real, the sublime, the unending, the peaceful, Nibbana. This, this is what he called the real, uh, the peaceful, the sublime, the unending, the boundless. He said it's something you can't locate in terms of time or in terms of space. So it's not, it's not a psychological thing, it's not a physical thing, it's not a mental thing, it's not an emotional thing. You can't locate it. Yeah? You can't put your thumb on it. You can't, you know, but <laughs> it's experienceable. Yeah? And uh, it's just like, you know, we might very well say that the, the uh, quality of Nibbana becomes more apparent as we begin to uh, cultivate meditation, cultivate the mind, and you get the sense of there's something here that's not in all this. Yeah, yeah. 
where you've got, so it starts with a sense of non-involvement or viveka, where you, something, you can step back, witness a thought, witness a feeling, witness an emotion. And this is the kind of recognizing this, this, this the domain. And as we develop that domain or deepen into that domain, that's the, that's, if you could say, that's the path or direction. Just like you can say, you know, non-involvement or dispassion doesn't really have a location or time, you know, that space is something you can drop back into. We might very well say, another way we look at it is, um, you know, when you try to find out who you are and what you are, and you really look into that, you can see, well, the body's just something, it's really sensations and feelings and energies and perceptions, it comes and goes, you know, that. Your thoughts, your moods, hopes, joys, passions come and go. You're not that. You can witness that. So this process of just knowing what you're not, <laughs> you're continuing not to say there aren't these things, but knowing that it's not that you're not them, you know, is another way in which we begin to get the right sense of the direction to to. Um, to open up into, to deepen into, to, to sit back into, rest back into. And that is not, you can't, it's not locatable, it's not findable, yet it's experienceable. It's a place of rest, place of peace, uh, boundless. <clears throat> so it's, um, you know, we can recognize that all our Confused thoughts are really just tangled up energies, tangled up mental energies, habits, their joys are particular formulations of mind. Um, our sorrows are formulations of mind. Our physical pains are formulations of, sen- of sensations. What's it like when it's not formulated? Yeah. So Nibbana is also called the unformulated, the unfabricated, the unconditioned. Because you're kind of reminding ourselves of these, uh, to, to, to how we, what we're encouraged to do is to really know the known, know the locatable, know what we can discern for its, for what it is—a pattern, a concoction, a program, a pattern, something that's happening that then unravels and changes into something else. Just as all our forms, physical forms, change over slowly over time, depending on what you mean by time, you know, in terms of the life of a mountain, our lives, you know, pretty brief flicker, isn't it? Yet you can take the current form of your body shape, age, so forth, as something that's really yourself, important, something to be made something out of. And what is it really? It's just the minute flicker of t- in the world of time that can't be held on to. And yet we can find ourselves kind of holding it. A passing thought is even briefer. You can find ourselves holding it, 
regurgitating it, running it through again and again and again, obsessing with it. An emotion, in terms of the, you know, is, is, is something, you know, it's, it's a flooding, but yet it does shift, change. And how involved we can get with it, how motivated we can get around these things. That may my feelings not be this way, may, be that, may they be that way. I should be happy all the time. Why? <laughs> you know, as an emotion, as a, a, you expect only one colour. And yet we feel, can feel really lost and agitated when we're not being that. Our relationships change. Come and go. So, you know, there's this kind of quality of boundlessness, and yet, which is, we might say, the real, and yet, uh, by and large, human beings choose the changeable. It's partly, you know, they choose the impermanent, choose the um, current feeling, something to be motivated by, current sensation, current occupation, something to be high, hang on to, make a foundation for. And the Buddha really approached this, um, this confusion, this, uh, you know, this mistake or ignorance or not getting it right or not really being in touch with the, the full way it is, with, with the real, in, in two fundamental ways, um, Dhamma, Vinaya, taught them both, Dhamma, Vinaya. Vinaya deals with form and function. Uh, Dhamma deals with uh, the way to the real. You know, so one in the boot, they're both necessary. Because um, we live in, a, if we manifest, our lives manifest an experience of form, physical form, everyone, that we all experience this. We have to come to terms with that and all that, that brings along with it. And we also experience functions, things to do, things to, to feed, to find shelter, to form groups, relationships, ones, twos, threes, fives, twenty, hundred, this is how humans operate. And Vinaya really deals with some of these, you might say, seemingly external experiences, um, how to moderate them, how to handle them skillfully, um, you know, so that we always have some, through that handling skillfully of our physical apparent needs, our functions, our activities, and so forth, you know, it, it still gives us the way to keep in touch with something beyond that. You know, something that's not a matter of form or function. Carefully handling form and function, we gotta stay in touch with something beyond that, which is more uh, the real. Mm. 
So sometimes, you know, the way it's been codified, we can see Vinaya as <clears throat> something that, you know, summoners of monks, nuns, renunciants do, and, you know, lay people don't have any. And this is a pretty uh, uh, crude kind of uh, summary of it. <clears throat> because after the Buddha's demise, then these teachings were basically remembered and divided up into collections of Dhamma, collections of Vinaya. But in general, the Buddha, when he taught, he said, I teach Dhamma Vinaya. He didn't say, you know, he didn't separate them. They're the left and right hand, you might say, of the Buddha. And if we look at that that concept, Vinaya, more thoroughly and more broadly, we can see that the same kinds of encouragements are made to, to lay people in terms of things like sense restraint, right livelihood, right speech, right thought, basically the Eightfold Path has a kind of core veneer in it, a core handling of behaviours, forms, functions. And the Buddha would give a lot of advice to, to various uh, kinds of people in terms of, of their relationships, in terms of activities, right livelihood and so forth. But more specifically to the people he was living with, the summoners, who, in a way, <clears throat> had a very simple kind of uh, simplified livelihood, something that uh, obviously felt needed to be encouraged and supported. Because, in a way, uh, for lay people, then livelihood kind of happens anyway. You know, it's it's what is determined by the society. What isn't determined by the society is the gone forth person, because they've gone forth from the society. So there's a lot more instructions in how to generate proper forms and functions for the summoners. Because they, you know, before his time, there was a pretty ragged bunch of uh, wanderers with all kinds of strange ideas and uh, precepts or non-precepts and so on. Um, so he really tried to shape it up, make it feeling that this particular form, the summoner form, acts as a kind of a sign. It's, it's a form, so of course it's not ultimately real, but it acts as a useful sign in a world of signs, in a world of footballs, footballers and fashion models and politicians and the whole lot, the whole kind of human comedy. And the summoner as a form, it's another form standing in that and saying, I'm not that, I'm not that, I'm not that, I'm not that, I'm not that. And manifesting qualities that point to the way to the real. So that the summoner form is basically a restraint form. It's a cool, rather than a passionate form. It's a form that naturally reminds one of, um, you know, it's not about possessions or appearances or fashions or beauty or attractiveness or anything like that. So it tends to be a form that stands against the current that drags people into obsessions. It reminds people. A lot of people, people aren't necessarily deliberately obsessed, but they get drawn in because of the power of the the unreal and its demands and the social pressures that, that finally act like a whirlpool and drag drag us in to 
we have to make a living, we have to make money, we have to look after our children, all this and the other. You know? So, you know, the Salmon Acts is something that the manifestation of it to look towards restraint, towards simplicity of needs, renunciation, and so forth, to, to, to bring those into uh, consciousness so you start to see how you can look at those skills in your daily life. These will lead to dispassion, to quietening, to deeper realization and to nibbana. That, that direction taking us to the real again and generally this is the case as most people <coughs> they, as they develop meditation find themselves most naturally inclined towards less interest in powerful stimulation um, less interest in worldly successes less interest in gaining and acquiring a lot of things it's a kind of natural Inclination as the mind touches into this quality of dispassion, detachment. So the the vinya really is trying to take that that realization and bring it to bear upon how we act, how we do, how we manifest, so that we can kind of keep that theme in mind. This is the why over the over the years the Buddha did did lay down and, and clarify training as various um, things came up, people were uncertain or lost their way or and he'd always say, look I taught when he laid down a rule a ruling, he would say, Well look, you know, I taught you dispassion and letting go, how come you got stuck in this one? <laughs> You know, hassling over robes, or um, you know, storing up all kinds of stuff, and you realise that actually, even when a Buddha's teaching is still there's this incredible power of this um, of the deluding passion and 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 grasping, and you know, to to just sweep all that away. <clears throat> So we see that in, in essence, when the Buddha <coughs> taught the Four Noble Truths, he was laying down a foundation. And the foundation really is about uh, <coughs> there being this sense of having to hold on, which is what dukkha means. It means we find ourselves in an existence where instead of things being released, things being in balance, things being poised, things taking care of themselves. We find ourselves somehow cast into a role of holding things together, pushing things away, hanging onto this, struggling against that. And this struggling and holding is the strain and the dis-ease and the stress, sometimes the downright anguish that he called dukkha, suffering. He said it originates it originates through this pathological hunger, thirst, <clears throat> not a deliberate choice, but a kind of instinct of, of 
a thirst, just like thirst isn't something you choose to have, it just happens. You know, so this kind of, it's a, it's a fundamental instinct to, to that we have, thirst for sense objects, thirst for sense contact. Um, so we seek that to, for food, and we look in that to kind of give us some happiness, give us a feeling of fruition, feeling a feeling of gladness. And to a certain extent it does, but rather like drinking salt water, as soon as you've downed one glass you feel kind of thirsty, so you have another one. <laughs> and you feel, oh that was nice, and then you have another one. So it's rather like that, it's got a tanha, or this thirst is briefly allayed, but uh, only briefly before the next thing comes along. And, uh, you know, for an average uncultivated mind, this is the real. This is what we do. We just keep down another glass of salt water. Go to a motorbike, then a night out in the movies, then uh, um, have some sleep, and then uh, listen to the radio, and then talk to somebody, and then, then, and then, and then. So the thirst is not just for sense, sense contact, but it also thirst is about the thirst to feel kind of solid, to feel apparently real. Yeah? So we get to feel real by doing things. We're going to kind of, must be, I must be real because I'm jigging around making things happen. Yeah? So we get this kind of instinct to keep doing something in order to feel kind of uh, grounded. If I don't do something, I feel a bit lost. This is this bhava, called the thirst for becoming. So it's always involving us in doing something, making something, making something happen. Or even social contact can be that sense, which, because I'm chatting with people, being with people, somehow it makes me feel a bit more real than if I'm in silence on my own. Because I'm bouncing, bouncing off, people are talking to me, there's energy shifting around between me and other people. Uh, so it gives me a kind of sense of, you know, energy. Without that I feel a little bit shaky or lost or restless or bored. And, you know, which is, I don't know about you, but certainly that's the way it can seem. So one of our challenges in meditation is just that, how boring it is, how restless it is, how... I don't feel very solid anymore. Yeah. And actually, you know, you want to feel really solid and and definitely doing the right thing, getting the right places. And maybe somebody will say, you've made it, give me a pat on the back and I'll be famous and have disciples and, you know, write a book about it. And I feel really, really real. Because <laughs> look what all this. And you actually... The Buddha saying you don't want any of this, really. Yeah. I mean, if that's what happens, it's what happens. You don't really want any of this. Because you, that's not the real. That's the concocted. That's the fabricated. That's the fashioned. That's the formed. And you want to be really careful with that. So you can also, this other thirst is to get away from things, to, to uh, zonk out, to not be here to avoid experiences, you know, sort of like seeking oblivion. 
it's really another form of becoming, but it, it's almost like putting the, putting the system into reverse gear. You want to get away from all forms and functions. So actually, it's always a, uh, this is a very, it's a subtle energy, subtle point, actually, how to steer between becoming, not, neither becoming nor not becoming, mm-hmm. neither pushing forward nor pulling away. But in that, the, the real indication that most of us can come to from time to time, anyway, is just the present moment. You know, just like a poise, a balance. When it's actually leaning, inclining forwards in time, or hanging back. You're kind of open, present, balanced, letting things flow through, and if things stop, we stop. If things move, we allow that to happen, so on. So... You know, this is the kind of real training for meditation is to find this uh, middle point, which is not pushing away, nor is it running forwards. And in that, you naturally, to do that, you have to experience these tremendous pulls and pushes as they rise up, you know, wanting to get somewhere, wanting to get out of it all, wanting to make something happen, being overwhelmed by too many things happening. And somewhere in that, this middle point is actually the point that gradually becomes much more than a point. It becomes a whole domain, which is bigger, it's vast, boundlessness. So it's once we begin to get into this, into touch with this quality of the real, or the dispassionate, or the unmoving, or the the unlocatable, you know, even kind of as a possibility, even as a kind of hint, even as a something we half glimpse, then, you know, it's, it's uh, really uh, deepening into that. So the third noble truth is the realization, which is a sachika, is, a, is something that's uh, is the real, the honest, the actual, uh, and uh, this is where is uh, what is made, what is real, what is realized, made real is the cessation or the extinction letting go of this, this thirst. So the letting go of the thirst is very much synonymous with the real, the realization. It's this thirst that keeps us, keeps nagging and pushing us. Mm. <clears throat> And what it nags and pushes us towards uh, is uh, called upadana, means a foundation or a clinging or food, something, it's often called just clinging or something hanging on. So as we get pushed into hanging on to this or that, and there are various forms, 
fundamental forms the Buddha pointed out. First one is the sense realm, how the the uh, energy pushes us into, or propels us into hanging on to sights, sounds, touches, thoughts, and so forth, because there's a particular charge in energy that happens when that when we do that, when that occurs, it's kind of flush, warmed, heated, or you know, energized by that. So, oh, that was nice, I'll do it again. Oh yeah, that was great, I'll do that again. So then gradually, or not gradually, but, but inevitably, this upadana, this clinging, we start to know, hey, that's where that, that energy starts to happen, I'll do that, I'll have one of those. Yeah, yeah if it occurs through you know, a sight or a sound, so I'll get that one in place. And then it occurs through warmth or cold or temperature, I'll get that one in place. Then it occurs, I get this kind of charge of interest or happiness when that's there, when I've got this particular thing. Yeah. When I was recently on a walk, I met a, I met a guy who did motorbikes. Uh, I was coming down a hill and he, he was very proudly shining his gleaming motorbikes. I felt he was really happy with his motorbikes. And uh, I liked the way that I was glad he was happy. It was nice to meet a happy person. <laughs> so I didn't, you know, I didn't deny him his happiness. But he had, um, he showed me he had three bikes, big bikes. One was about 900 over 900 cc's. One was 500, about 700. It's 900, over 900 cc bike. He could, he could go up to 200 miles an hour on this thing. It was like a rocket. And he loved it. It was, it was sheer, sheer unabashed, erotic joy to ride this bike. And I thought, well, everybody needs a bit of joy. Good luck, you know. Um... He had three, so then he was talking about these, he talked about these bikes for about 40 minutes or so. You know, various specifications, the engine, the things it could do, things he could do with it, uh, who'd ridden one before, uh, you know, all these different specifications of this bike. And he, he spent his life gleaming, shining and polishing his bike. His wife said, you know, either me or the bikes. He said, don't push me, you know. <laughs> Let's not get to that decision, you know. <laughs> and just as I was leaving, he had another shed, and he had three more bikes in the other shed. And that one bike was even bigger and more powerful than the other bike he'd had. So I thought, you know, great. When, when did, when is, where is the ultimate bike? You know, when does it actually end? And his happiness, his his joy juice, was bound up in these bikes, you know. and which you know. Uh, so clinging or finding a foundation, finding a place for this particular energy of excitement, of eroticness, of joy, of pleasure, of feeling we've got something, we are something, isn't necessarily evil uh, or immoral, anything like that. But, you know, what happens, say, when is, where is the ultimate bike? When have you got enough bikes? What happens if you break your leg? Um, <laughs> you know, uh, what happens if, if you're on the bike and it crashes, which is often, which can be the case. So it's, it's not wrong, it's just fragile, isn't it? 
So when we look at these foundations of our joy and happiness and solidity, whether it's a bike, it's a place, whether it's people, other people, relationships with other people, children, spouse, parents, whatever, yeah, it's poignant. And it, uh, it's, it's somehow there can be beauty in that, and yet it's all very fragile. Not wrong, but just fabricated, fragile, subject to change. And we could do better than that. We could get, we could do better than that. That's the point. It's not that it's wrong, but it's just that we could do a lot better than that. Uh, it's pretty easy to see other people's attachments as well, you know. <laughs> I could get beyond that until you start to look at what your your own attachments. You think, oh no, but this is important. <laughs> so one of our our uh, fundamental trainings is this kind of surrender um, to. A group form whereby, like here, we're staying in the monastery, we have routines, uh, you know, which probably nobody's really sold on like big time. This is exactly what I want to do with my life get a bell ringing at four o'clock in the morning, jump out of, you know, I mean, people do it, but I can't say really, you know, waving flags for it. Um, Yet here it is. And we have these routines. I think most people, find there's value in routines and yet somehow I was just having a nice chat when the bell rang or I felt like having a lie-in and the bell rang or I didn't I went to do something and it was time for the meal you know so it's always kind of going against our our kind of our, our rhythms our patterns and it, of course it is a purely a fabrication and yet it's a fabrication that keeps pointing to Whatever we're involved with, whatever we're busy with, whatever we're, wherever, wherever we're in, this is not the real thing. You can let go of it. You can come out of that. You can put it aside. You can drop it. You get by. You know. You can put. You can let go of a happy thing. You can let go of an interesting thing. You can let go of an important thing. You can even let go of an urgent thing. You don't really don't want to, but we can. Uh, and it's and you know because this this upadana, this clinging, this finding a foundation, this holding on, is a very profound. It's a very deeply embedded experience for us, and uh, some of that's marked by this is really important. You know. I was talking to a friend of mine who was really kind of bothered with his work and working so hard and 62 years old and had enough of it all. And I said, well, why don't you take a break? Well, you know, I don't know what I could do if I wasn't busy all the time. I go nuts. I said, have you ever tried it? Well, no, you know. 
I mean, why don't you just, you don't do nothing, just go for a holiday, just go traveling, you know, go walking, just get out of that working every day thing, you know, retire, you're 62 years old, you've got enough money, retire. Well, I can't go anywhere because of the cat. You've got this 20-year-old cat. So you've got to stay to look after this geriatric cat. I mean, it's kind of touching, what's it? But, you mean, your life is bound to this cat. Um, you've got daughters, you've got... Couldn't they look after your cat? I mean, not a, the cat's not irrelevant, but why, how, why you, you know? See how we kind of almost something in us finds these things like our house, our belongings, our cat, our parents, our children, whatever. And I've got to have, I've got to do it otherwise, you know. Nothing is allowed to be independent, everything gets part of oneself. So certainly, you know, reflection, very helpful reflection. I found it incredibly useful having some time away to uh, look at the sense of attachment to a monastery, found, making a foundation out of this is where I am, this is what I do, this is important, this is urgent. Uh, if I'm not here, everything's going to fall apart, all that kind of thing. Saying, so, well, you're going to be dead one day, so why don't you die now and enjoy it? Just, uh, you know, because clinging isn't necessarily even happy. It's, it's just necessary. They need me. It's important. It's vital. Nobody else can. You know, you mean the world could not manifest without you? <laughs> uh huh. So that, that 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 craving, that clinging, is not even something even pleasant all the time. It's it's you know it can be erotic. It can be just dutiful. It can be something that gives one a sense of meaning or solidity or need or people other people need me and that you know and yet you ever check in with those. So Samuel's life is really aimed at just starting to check those, to count those, to question those. You've gone forth. Yeah. We could say, well, you know, you mean you're not going to look after your 20-year-old cat? No. Not ultimately. Um, you know, we... we we do what we can, uh, but you don't hang on, as if nobody else will, as if not everything else depends. Everything depends on for one's form and function. It's always making too much of form and function. So, when the Buddha taught Vinaya, he's really saying, you know, actually laying down for as a lifestyle that you. You know, we you, you let go. You've gone forth. 
you're not anybody's son, wife, husband, daughter, you know, that those things have been put have been put aside. It's allowing is allowing for independence. It doesn't mean there's no relatedness. It just means the relationships are much more uh, one of of compassion rather than attachment. Rather than firming up somebody, rather than holding things together. And really this is uh, um, really beautiful to see this kind of as it's lived, because whenever you explain it, you, one always comes down to it either sounding really like cutting everybody off or clinging to being a monk or something. We actually see it manifesting and live it. You get the sense of how this balance of, because essentially when we practice the Dhamma in terms of Vinaya, we come to this middle way, which is not about pushing anybody away, nor about pulling anybody in. And in that openness, you can feel, you allow people to enter, there is compassion, there is concern, but you also, you let them pass through. Mm. Certainly, um, this last period of time, walking around in Britain, I've seen the the tremendous uh, value that the summoner sign has for people. People who are not culturally or conventionally Buddhist, or even really know much, or have a religious inclination, but just see this sign, this person, robes, shaven head, quiet, uh, you know, Standing still in the street or walking across, a, walking the countryside, and something they they see something. It reminds them of something. And for many people, it's just a brief glance or a flicker of attention. And mm-hmm. but then, for a certain proportion, the bell sounds very strong, and you get people, you know, realize, oh, this is someone of harmlessness. This is someone of letting go, this is someone who's not bound up, this is someone who's not grasping, this is someone who's moral, this is someone you can trust, someone who's honest, it means all that. And just to keep ringing that bell, and you see how much respect, joy and uh, delight uh, people experience when they come into contact with uh, a summoner. So then it does actually create an occasion for compassion, for warm-heartedness, for generosity, for clarity, for inspiration. You know, so it does, and it, but you're doing it to whoever comes along. You haven't got your chosen one or two. You're doing it to whoever. So it's a very wide relational field. In fact, it can take in whoever wants to be there. One person, two person, 20 people, old, young, fair, squat, foul, whatever, you know. I mean, even people who are half drunk seem to still see see me and get some sense of, well, what's that about, you know, and and be inspired by it. Amazingly enough. And, uh, you know, just standing, I was standing in a cathedral in Gloucester, Gloucester Cathedral, had a couple of uh, friends with me, long-term lay practitioners, very 
worthy, very steady, very grounded, very worthy, accomplished practitioners in this, this cathedral. And they wandered off one direction. I was just wandering around. Somebody comes along, this woman comes along. She sees this and she just makes a beeline, you know, <laughs> for this particular sign. It comes up, oh, it's good that you're here. Talks about this, starts talking about some difficulties he's having. I give her a very brief you know, a very brief instruct well instruction, just a, a brief um pointer to being present here and now and letting go of things and she starts to just, you know, soften and relax and come out of a tense state. And, you know, this is really wonderful, just this chance meeting. Now, I'm sure my friend could have said the same thing to her. But, you know, who do you see? When you see one of these, you know, it's standing out, isn't it? So she didn't make a beeline for my friend because he just looks like another bloke. <laughs> who could be. But she makes a beeline for this because... It represents something. So I felt the enormous value of manifesting this particular form and function, this veneer, which is about, you know, because it does speak by itself. And it, when that direct speaking that it does Irrele- you know, almost irrespective of what my mouth says, of what my thoughts say, this thing says something that resonates and people get a touch. Or those who can listen, those who can resonate with it, get a touch of what Nibbana means or the direction towards it. Or, you know, before anything is said. I think, well, could there be anything more compassionate than that, more helpful in the world than that. As a basis, and certainly if one trains within this, you know, there's a lot more than just this image, but there's also specific things one can say. But as as a doorway, it's it's a really wonderful possibility. We all have to live in a world of form and function. We manifest through that. This is a way to make form and function something that is uh, speaks by itself yeah. and points one way. This is, I think, the, the meaning of it. So, in our practice here, then, you know, this is so-called monastery, which of course is purely a concoction, a fabrication. There's no real abiding monastery. There's just elements changing in space. There's no real monks, no real nuns. There's just elements and feelings and sensations and concoctions with no abiding essence in them, no location. Yeah, And yet in the world of form and function, there's this. And it can guide us. It can guide us to that that abiding place of the real. And we use, so we try to gather ourselves for this period of time to to strengthen this form, to clarify these functions so that it can lead us, it can direct us to 
that which is beyond form and function. So tonight we have the <coughs> meditation <coughs> and uh, using the particular forms that we you can adopt in meditation. There's a standing, the simplicity of it, very simple function just to bring the mind, bring the, the running mind, bring the activated mind to rest, to stability, to poise, bring it to knowing, bring it to the place of knowing, of witnessing, of awareness. And in that place of awareness you can see or you can begin to sense more clearly how the, the thirsts, the instincts, the reflexes of uh, tanha, the abiding places that we, we hang out in, our history, our ideas and so forth, you can see these as for what they really are. Something that is, can be let go of. Once we can, once we can see this, that these uh, thoughts, ideas, feelings can be let go of, then it doesn't really matter whether they're there or not. They're just forms and functions. It's not to get rid of form and function at all, but to quell that belief in them, that fascination with them, that, that thirst for them, that picking them up and identifying with them that so reduces our potential, reduces our, our uh, reality into this drugged dream, sangsara. So, offer this for your reflection.